This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. For listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. This is a fan podcast, and in most episodes we review and discuss several issues of Mike Grell's excellent comics, but we have something special planned for this episode. We were recently at Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's one of our favorite conventions and has remained true to its origins by focusing almost exclusively on comics. The convention has been around for more than 30 years and is organized by the owner of the local Heroes Aren't Hard to Find comic stores in the Charlotte area. The large, cavernous floor of the Charlotte Convention Center was filled with comic artists and writers, from those just starting out up through seasoned professionals. In addition, there were numerous vendors selling comics, figures, posters, toys, and games. Meanwhile, discussion panels were held in the many meeting rooms upstairs, including a panel where the editor of Back Issue magazine interviewed Mike Grell about his career for an upcoming article that will be featured in the magazine. There were lots of amazing costumes, and there was even a separate area focused on cosplay activities, as well as an area with arcade games. I made a point to play Lord of the Rings pinball every day. There were around 40,000 attendees and nearly 300 guests, including Neil Adams, Jim Starenko, Ramona Freyden, Pat Broderick, Cullen Bunn, Marguerite Bennett, Andy Runton, and the man we were there to see, Mike Grell himself. As we always say, Mike Grell is a truly nice man who is always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. We saw examples of that all weekend as he sat diligently drawing commissions while chatting with fans. We always encourage everyone to check out his excellent prints and to consider a commission, and we followed our own advice by picking up a couple of new prints he had added since the last time we saw him. Plus, we got two original commissions of Torin and Tamara from Star Slayer. We'll share them on our Facebook and Twitter pages. So this episode is going to be all about Heroes Con. During the weekend, we met up with several other podcasters and recorded some short segments for the show. The idea for the episode originated with our friends Joe Crawford, Jeff Nettleton, and Brian Mulvey, who all had independently asked that we share our comics origin stories as well as our Mike Grail origin stories. When we saw that Mike Grell was going to be attending Heroes Con, we decided to save those stories for this episode. And when we learned that several other podcasters would also be attending, we decided to get their Mike Grell origin stories for the episode as well. During the weekend, we had the opportunity to record with Mike Lane of Comics in the Golden Age. He's such a big fan that he's had his Green Arrow comics bound into hardback books, and he made a long early morning drive to get to see Mike Grell and check out the convention. We also talked to Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast, who is a lifelong Mike Grell fan. We first met Jeff at the Asheville Comic Con last year, where he led Mike Grell's discussion panel at that convention. And while he wasn't actually at Heroes Con, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network happened to be driving through our area two weeks before Heroes Con. And since he's a Mike Grell fan, he stopped and joined us for lunch and a short recording session for this episode. We also had the opportunity for a lovely conversation with Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions. They do the excellent podcast, The Mighty Thorcast, 
Ronan Rabbit about Usagi Yojimbo, Lords of Order about Dr. Fate, and the Emerald Archer about Green Arrow. Unfortunately, our timing didn't work out to record with them, but we definitely hope another opportunity for that works out in the future. We also met up with our friend Micah Harris, who is an author having written several genre books, including The Eldritch, New Adventures of Becky Sharp, and Ravenwood, Stepson of Mystery. And he's worked on comics with our friend and artist Lawson Wallace, including Lorna, Relic Wrangler. It was a great convention. Let's get started now by sharing our origin stories. My comics origin story starts in the 1970s, when as a kid I would accompany my mom to the local grocery store. We lived in a small rural area, and at the time there was only one grocery store in town. And that grocery store had one spinner rack with comics, and my mom always let me get one comic when she took me to the store. I tended to gravitate toward the DC characters, including Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Green Arrow, along with Marvel's Spider-Man. And occasionally I would be lucky to find sci-fi comics like Gold Key, Star Trek, and Space Family Robinson. Starting when I was around 9 or 10 years old, my father would buy me wonderful hardback collections for my birthday and Christmas each year. The superhero books included Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Shazam. But even more special were the science fiction and adventure collections he bought me, including Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, and Tarzan. Those science fiction and adventure comics were my favorites. My dad would pick up some kids' comics at the grocery store, and we'd both read them. I remember Woody Woodpecker, Uncle Scrooge, Casper, and Richie Rich. I did a lot of reading in general and always loved adventure, fantasy, and legends. I grew up a fan of swashbuckling adventure heroes like Robin Hood and Zorro, so Green Arrow was a natural fit. I read the Green Lantern and Green Arrow comics by Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill specifically for Green Arrow. And later I got my first introduction to Mike Grell reading the various Green Arrow backup stories he would illustrate in other titles. And then, of course, he illustrated the later issues of Green Lantern and Green Arrow. So that was my first introduction to Mike Grell. Sadly, I didn't discover The Warlord during its original run. It would have been an ideal title for me because it included all of the things I love in a good fantasy adventure story. But it wasn't the type of comic that would ever be in the spinner rack at the local grocery store. So I didn't find The Warlord until later when we had access to an actual comic store. I didn't discover Mike Grell until Darren and I were dating. Once a month we used to make the 90-minute one-way drive to the nearest comic store, which was Mountain Empire Comics. We became friends with the owner, Robert Pilk, and have remained friends to this day. In fact, we met up with Robert at Heroes Con. Darren and I both loved the same types of adventure, fantasy, and science fiction stories, so it was easy for us to pick out comics that we would read together. I'm a longtime fan of Robin Hood. I loved the Disney animated film as a kid and read Robin Hood stories early on. I loved the retelling of the story by author Robin McKinley in The Outlaws of Sherwood. She added some additional female characters in the book, and Marion is such a good archer herself that she even won the Golden Arrow in the big archery competition. So my introduction to Green Arrow was through Mike Grell's Longbow Hunter, and I could not have asked for a better artist or writer to help me appreciate the best the character has to offer. Of course, I quickly grew to like his other comics like John Sable as well. And while there were several mainstream superhero titles that we read, we always enjoyed independent titles the most because they always seem to feature more of the types of stories that we like the very best. I'm sure it's no surprise to any of you to know that other titles we loved included Ron Randall's Trekker and Mark Schultz's Xenozoic Tales, in addition to mystery comics like Nathaniel Dusk and The Maze Agency, as well as comedy adventures like The Trouble with Girls, fantasies such as The Realm, and real-world dramas like Tales from the Heart of Africa. We discovered those titles together, and we still love them all to this day. We also discovered anime and manga during this time as well, including the works of Rumiko Takahashi, Monkey Punch, Tsukasa Hojo, Kosuke Fujishima, 
Kenichi Sonata, Haruka Takachiyo, Joji Manabe, Izumi Matsumoto, Masamuni Shiro, Leiji Matsumoto, and Hayao Miyazaki. We know that our friends Clinton Robison, Gene Hendricks, Jarrell Hamilton, and James Lee will be familiar with most of those names. And now let's move on and hear from our many guests this episode. Joining us next from the relatively geeky network of podcasts and blogs to educate us in everything geeky is Professor Alan Middleton. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank face you. to face with the Sutherlands. Uh, we've really enjoyed they're our staring me down. They're staring me down hard right now. That's right. There's two of us. They're, they're, they're trying to do. break me in this interrogation. Well, I'll explain that most of this episode is being recorded at Heroes Con, but while Professor Allen isn't going to be there at Heroes Con, he just happened to be driving through our area a couple of weeks before the con, so we all decided to get together. Wasn't that nice? So far. So <laughs> <laughs> you haven't asked me any of these hard questions yet. Well, that's right. These are going to be tough. So we thought of taking him to a local comic shop where he could peruse the quarter bins. But then we thought of something even better, which was taking him to a library where the books are free to read. <laughs> That's a win-win. <laughs> so we're talking today about people's comics origin stories and how they discovered Mike Grell. So let's start with the first question. What's your comics origin story? It was probably around the age of 10-ish, where I remember traveling during the summer up to my aunt's house on the lake. In upstate New York, there was just that stack of comics in the corner that you would probably didn't seem like it ever changed from summer to summer, but always the little Richie Rich here or an Archie there or a little Lulu. And then also this was in the era of mid-70s where DC had a lot of the 100-page reprints. Yeah. I think she must have thought those were a great deal. Yes. So stacks and stacks of DC superstars and DC special and various things like that. So that's where it started that in elementary school friends, just, you know, trading comics back and forth. Nice. Uh, I like those 100-page specials. Those were good deals. They were written in the 70s, or more likely the 60s. A lot of them would be reprints. So those 100 pages, they would take a while to read. Yeah. And, and a lot could, of you stories. You could while away an afternoon with a couple of those, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, a lot of nice one-and-done stories. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about your first exposure to Mike Grell. This probably would have been the Legion when he was doing art and occasional covers in the mid-70s. So some of his earliest work for DC. And this was the time where this was, I have to credit my buddy Peter for this, because he was the first person to explain to me that different artists had different art styles. So to me, a comic was a comic was a comic. I didn't even notice that there were names by scripter or pencil or ink or what any of that meant. Figured it's Richie Rich, it's a Richie Rich, it's an Archie, it's a Adam Strange, it's a whatever it is. It's you get to that moment where you realize oh, people actually do this work. Right. And Mike Grell was just the first name. He was it was it was, it was in that era. So it would have been that uh, would have been that early, very early Legion work for him and then followed him from project to project. Well, we we hear a lot of Warlord Worlds listeners who discovered Mike Grail through Legion, which mm-hmm. isn't surprising at all. And we keep being pressured to cover that, so that is coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> we love it too. We had some other things to cover first, but it's coming soon. <laughs> good, good. I will stop sending those ranting emails. Oh, okay. demanding. So those are you from all those different emotions. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your favorite Mike Grail character. That would be John Sable. And I probably found him around the time when I was college in the mid-80s. And so I was getting into 
more independent type of books at that time. No. Expanding my horizons beyond DC and Marvel. And I wouldn't know if I recognized his name or knew from following him on World War that this was his next project and I was specifically looking out for it or whether it's one I just saw on the stands, noticed the style, figured out quickly that it was one of his characters. And I've never been averse to non-superhero comic book characters to me. Our expression that Emily and I use on Short Black Showcase a lot is that comics are a medium, not a genre. Yes. Comics are a medium that can tell me, you guys know this from the various things that, that you guys cover, that superheroes are certainly one genre that's well-suited mm -hmm. to the comic book form, but it's certainly not the only one. Right. So the idea of a cool James Bondy sort of spy slash adventure slash private eye slash body all the various jobs that john sable had over the years and the various types of stories that that grell would tell with him i just in, enjoyed finding something of a really high quality that was a little bit different it was yeah. a little bit out there it really was it's a favorite of ours too and then when it showed up on tv for however nine episodes, however many episodes actually aired of the TV show. That was one of the early things in our marriage that my wife and I watched regularly. And I have a few of them on videotape. Oh, wow. I don't think they'll play on anything. And I'm sure if I tried, it would snap wow. in an instant. But knowing that I have something that has, <laughs> it, it has a label on the outside, it's uh -huh. faded just a little bit. Right. But it says Sable TV show, so that's... What character would you like to see Mike Grell work on in the future? That would be easy, more John Cena. If that, if, if that was the intent of the question within his current creations, it would definitely be more John Sable. And the nice thing is there's, a, I think, a timeless nature to that character. Uh, and the, the, the types of circumstances that he finds himself in. You can either age him in real time or, uh, or, or not. I just think there's so many types of stories that you can tell with that character. No, I agree completely. And I'm very hopeful for that as well, because I think that most recent trade ended with more to come. <laughs> I know we've already masked that question at a couple of cons, and it's sort of like John Sable is always in the back of his mind as something he'd like to do more of. Star Slayer is always in the back right. of his mind as something he wants to do more of. So, I mean, there's a point where I would have answered that Warlord would be my favorite character. But I actually think with Warlord 50, in a lot of ways, he wrapped up what he wanted to say with that character. And then he was somewhat involved in the next 20 issues or so. But I think in a lot of ways, that story is somewhat done from his perspective. And I, I think if you grilled him, you might, you might at some point admit to that. But I don't know that John Sable's done. I don't know that that story's done. I, I agree with you completely because we don't ever hear him talk about wanting to revive Warlord. And of right. course he revisited There might be Warlord. legal issues too and rights issues and all those things could be involved. With. And plus, you know, he, he revisited Warlord just That's in true. the late 2000s. Right. So I think he right. sort of so feels he done. really right. wrapped right. it up. Mm -hmm. And we aren't going to give that away for our <laughs> listeners who will stay with us until we get to that point many years in the future. But I think he's done with Warlord. Lord, but I, I think John Sable, he would do more of it if he could. Star Slayer, he would do more if he could. I know Tarzan, he would do more Tarzan. Oh, sure. So this is a non-comics question, but what made you decide to go into podcasting? And what do you like most about it? I think the answer to both of those questions is the same. And that is, it seemed like a really interesting community of people. There seemed to be a real collegiality about most of the podcasts. 
that first batch of podcasts that I was listening to. People would regularly show up on each other's shows, regularly say nice things about other people's shows, encourage listeners to check out other people's shows. It just seemed like such a really nice community. And with the exception of Shag, almost everyone I found <laughs> has played. <laughs> and since Emily twisted my arm and got me into podcasting, it was it was her idea first. Wow. Okay, thank you, Emily. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. I, yeah. I have found that to be the case. That it really is a pretty great community, groups of listeners as well as other podcasters. And so I think I think that's one of the impulses to get into it was to attempt to break into this community, and it's certainly been an overwhelmingly positive experience for us. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So before we go, please tell everyone how they can follow you and where they can find your podcast. Well, our general interest comic book podcast can be found at Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And that's my daughter Emily and I have a range of comic book shows and new content shows up every week or 10 days or so. And then we have a little side project that has five or six episodes out at this point called Dorkness to Light, dorknesstolight.blogspot.com, where we very specifically look at characters in comics and in other media that have sort of a religious or spiritual bent to them. Well, I know that I can't say enough about podcasts that you do with Emily. They're all fantastic. And the ones that you do by yourself are Okay. Passable, yes. <laughs> Based on the download numbers, everyone agrees with you. <laughs> I don't believe I that at that. all. I but I want to sincerely thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, and I hope you have a good trip. Thank you. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Short Box Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Short Box Showcase. And remember... We're not experts. We're just family. Joining us next is Mike Lane from the excellent podcast Comics in the Golden Age. Welcome to Warlord Worlds. Thank you very much. It is a total honor to be here. We're talking today about people's comic origin stories and how they first discovered Mike Grell in particular. So let's start with some questions here. All right, Mike, tell us, what is your comics origin story? 
My origin story begins when I was 10 years old, and I was either in a convenience store, drugstore, something along those lines, and I saw G.I. Joe issue 26, The Origin of Snake Eyes, on a stand. I had been into superheroes as a kid. I have tons of photos of myself playing with Mego figures. I watched the Super Friends, the old Batman show, the old Superman show. I loved the Superman film, but for some reason, comic books was just not on my radar. As a little kid, it really wasn't until I was 10 and I saw that comic, and I just got really excited and grabbed it immediately. Took it home, read it. I began immediate search because it was a two-part story to go out in issue 27, and when I picked up issue 27, I noticed there was Transformers, Conan the Barbarian, Indiana, all these licensed comics of characters I knew from TV shows and films. So I immediately just started. I think I'm someone when I get into something, I dive into it completely. So within a few months, I was already a diehard collector. And it wasn't long before Marvel, DC, everything. And I never looked back. Oh, that's wow. a fantastic that's story. That's a great story. And I remember those Mego figures very well. Well, have you always stayed a fan or have you drifted in and out of comics? Always, always a fan. Taste change, you know, I've dropped titles, gone back to them, dropped companies at times, but I've never had a point where I was not buying comic books regularly. Fantastic. That's a loyal fan. Yeah. What was your first exposure to Mike Grell's work? Uh, Longbow Hunters. I had just started getting into DC, and I don't know if I saw a house ad or I saw the actual cover at the store. I cannot remember, but I do have this sense of seeing the cover to the first issue of Longbow Hunters and just being blown away by the painted art. And I loved the series and followed him. And I really, for a while, I was just the Green Arrow fan. Right. And it wasn't really until I heard that he was leaving the title, which broke my heart. Yeah. But that's when I started going back and looking into his other work. Warlord started getting um, John Sable, stuff like that. And since then, I've just always been a fan. And we know he is because he has wonderfully bound copies of all those Green Arrow comics, and you're getting sketches in some of them this weekend, right? Yes, two of them are currently sitting at um, Mike Rell's table right now. Well, I previously, Volume 1, I've gotten Green Arrow sketched. Volume 2, I've asked for Black Canary. And Volume 3, which he also has now, I'm going to get Shadow. Oh, fabulous. Oh, we love Shadow, too. So I, I can guess that Green Arrow, then, is probably your favorite Mike Grell character. But tell us, if he's not first, who would be first, or at least who's second, then? This was the toughest question you mentioned, because <laughs> Green Arrow and Warlord, I love them so much. My inclination at first was to go to Warlord, because he truly is a Mike Grell yes, character. He created right. the character. But at the end of the day, I do have to go with Green Arrow. But having said that, the easy second call. Warlord. Absolutely. Uh, I can imagine that. Fantastic. What character would you like to see Mike Grell work on more in the future? I hope this isn't a cheating answer. I wouldn't mind seeing him come up with some more new characters, to be honest. I'd like to see something different. Not that I, I would not be absolutely thrilled for him to return to any of the characters he's done. Right. I would love it, but I would be equally thrilled to see an entirely new creation out there. I'm sure Mike Grell would be happy to hear yeah, that, too. I like yeah, that idea. Something new. So Heroes Con is where we are this weekend, and I think this is your first year here. So tell us what you like about Heroes Con. Honestly, I like it because it reminds me so much of Baltimore Comic Con, which is the one I'm in my area that I go to. It's all about comics. It's, and, I, and I go to conventions for other reasons. I like to see pop culture guests. I like other science fiction, fantasy. So I like conventions that are mixed, but I notice as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm gravitating more towards wanting to go to comics only, and this is a dream for that. It's just everything comics. What made you decide to go into podcasting, and what do you like most about that? 
pod because it wasn't so much that I had some huge desire to go into podcasting so much as when I would listen to a lot of the shows I loved, which tended to be focused on silver bronze or more modern comics. I just, after a while, I noticed that golden age comics I felt were kind of getting a bad rap. And I don't mean they were being, I mean, so much disparaged, but I think people, I was hearing a lot of comments that were kind of dismissive. People would just mention that, oh, I've never really read those. I, I tried a few, it didn't click. Or they would be going through a comic that had a reprint story and they would just skip over the reprint story. And I just, or they'd be really into a character that's been around since the Golden Age, but they hadn't really read the Golden Age tales or tried and hadn't cared for them. Right. And I looked around to see what there was covering Golden Age, and there were a few character-centric ones, Superman, Batman, Doctor Fate, but the only one I could find that was really Golden Age in general had ended a few years ago. And I even contacted, I think it was Bill Jourdain who was doing it, and he said he, he didn't have any plans to bring it back. So it kind of bounced around in my head for a year or so. Oh, you know, it'd be nice to have some, I felt like some voice out there kind of praising Golden Age comics and discussing their merits. And I finally went to my cousin, Chris, who's my co-host, and said, if I did this, would you? Would? And he, he was very enthusiastically, yeah, absolutely. So that kind of tipped the scales a little. I was like, all right. And we even recorded not knowing if we were really going to do it. <laughs> but after we finished it, he was like, yeah, let's put it up and see. And it's been fun. And I think as much as I like talking about the topic, I think for me, I just enjoy talking about it with my cousin. That's my favorite part. It's just, we, I got him into comics when he was little. He's always been like the person I talk to most about comics. So it's just fun discussing it with him more than anything. Well, I know that we can attest to the fact that your Comics in the Golden Age podcast is fabulous. It's one that we look forward to listening to regularly. So uh, we encourage everyone to listen. So why don't you just take a moment and tell everyone where they can find that? You can download episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. There is a webpage comicsinthegoldenage.com where you can download the episodes. We also have a Facebook page as well. And I recently signed up for um, Twitter, which took me a while. <laughs> we <laughs> kept know. looking for you there. <laughs> yeah, but it is there at hashtag comics in the GA. And so please take a listen. And I do have to cut in just to say that I am also a huge fan of you know, Warlord Worlds and Trucker Talk, which I've recently gotten into as well. And I think you guys do a fabulous job. Oh, oh thank oh, you so much. Thank you for that unsolicited plug. We appreciate it. And thanks for taking time out of this convention to speak with us today. Thank you. It really has been an honor being on your show. I appreciate it. Hey, Mike. Hey, Chris. What's up? I just got back from the comic store. What'd you get? Uh, some really good books. They had the latest issues of Saga and Batman, and I got the latest collection of Walking Dead. That's cool. I just got some in the mail, too. I got the latest collections of Adventures into the Unknown, The Spirit, and Young Romance. I've never heard of any of those. Oh, they're all from the Golden Age. The Golden Age? You've heard of the Golden Age of comics, right? Well, of course, but I've just never read that much from it. Oh, you're missing out. There's some great material here. And nowadays, they're really reprinting a lot of it. I tried it once or twice, but I never got into it. Oh, you should really try again, man. There are some amazing writers working in that era. Bill Finger, Gardner Fox, Joe Simon some of the best artists to ever work in the industry. Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, Joe Kubert. And it wasn't just about the superheroes then. They produced science fiction books, crime, romance, humor, all sorts of genres. Wow, you really love that stuff. You should do a podcast about it. You know, you're right. I should do a podcast. And you should do it with me. We can call it Comics, Comics in the Golden Age. And we could create a website for it. Comicsinthegoldenage.com and we could also publish episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and make a fan page to follow over on Facebook. Heck, 
We could even talk about the golden age of the modern age, also known as 90s image comics. No. No, Chris. No. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Joining us next from the excellent Geek Brain podcast is our friend Jeff Messer. Welcome to Warlord Worlds. Oh, it is my pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. We're talking today about people's comic origin stories and how they discovered Mike Grell in particular. So let's start with what is your comic origin story? Well, it's actually one and the same for Mike Grell and my comic origin story. A little kid, five, six years old, growing up in rural North Carolina. My grandfather randomly brought home a comic book from the corner store one day, and it happened to be Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 219, drawn by Mike Grell. Fabulous. That's a great origin story of both things. So have you always stayed a fan of comics, or have you drifted in and out of fandom? You know, I've been a fan for the majority of my life. There was a period in the late 90s through the early 2000s that I got away from it a little bit. I only had one lonely comic book in my pull list at the local shop. But I always tried to maintain my fandom. You know, there's a certain... I, I owe my creative life to comic books. I owe my inspiration, what made me want to become a storyteller, what made me want to to become an entertainer was being a kid watching, you know, uh, old Batman TV episodes and repeats, reading comic books, and then Star Wars came along in the movie theaters and and it just really captivated me. So, I I mean, I was a fan from the beginning and, you know, earned it outright. I was always a geek. I loved everything, science fiction, anything. I would try anything, even the bad stuff. I always like it when you always say on your show, you know, keep your geek flag flying high. That's That's great, too. So I do want to come back, though, to your comics origin with Mike Grell, because you have such a wonderful story related to comics and Mike Grell that we've heard before. But please share that with everyone listening. Well, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, like I said, the first comic book that my grandfather, it was just random. I mean, it could have been anything. It could have been, well, let's see, that was 1976. It could have been Prez. For all, you know, and who knows what path that would have set me off onto. (laughs) But I really, as a kid, it was that comic book. And I went, I would get other comics and I would notice that the art was different. And, you know, just making that connection and thinking, I really like this art. And maybe it was that first impression is the lasting impression. I don't know. But I I knew the name. I was like Mike Grell. And he always had such a cool signature, too. It was very stylized. And and so I followed his career. And, you know, as my preteen years were were coming upon me was around the time of first comics and the independent comics and you know uh, star slayer at pacific and mm-hmm. i would go to the corner market and get the comic buyer's guide and i would see all these things that i couldn't get on the spinner racks that i was i would have to find a way to seek it out and of course in the comic buyer's guide they had you know for sale you could order issues of books and so i ordered from some buyer a whole bunch of john sable freelance like the first 11 issues or something like that right and you know i was too young to be reading it at 12 <laughs> but it really captivated me and it, it made me want to become a better storyteller because of it and i was like man so mike grell wrote this too and he drew it and, and i as a kid i started out wanting to be an artist and i did a little bit of drawing and stuff and i, I just sort of abandoned that as I became a writer later on. Actually, it was in the sixth grade, I met another kid who just moved from Michigan who ended up being a really great natural artist, and it made me kind of go, eh, never mind, forget it. So I wanted to be a writer, and I loved Mike's storytelling style. Now, the story you may be referring to is 
1987, when the Longbow Hunters came out, I was with my family on a trip to Charlotte, North Carolina, just for the weekend, just kind of kicking around for the weekend. And we saw the sign for the Heroes Aren't Hard to Find comic shop. Right. And I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, we got to pull in because it was a comic book store. I'd never been into an actual comic book store at that point. And we went in and it was, you know, nearly closing time and Longbow Hunters had just come out. And I saw these signs on the wall for Longbow Hunters. And I thought, oh, it's just publicity stills. But I looked at it closer and it was like in-store signing this weekend only. Mike Grell. And, I, and so I started looking around frantically like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And it turned out there were two stores, and he was at the other store that day, and he was going to be in that store the next day on Sunday. <laughs> and it was too far to get from one store to the other before they closed. And it was a tragedy. So I took a couple of those flyers with me, and I, I kind of said to the guy at the store, because I was so desperate at that point, because one of my heroes was here, so but not here. And I, I, said, I said, if I bought a book, and left it with you with enough money for postage, could you get him to sign it and send it to me? You know, and this is back in the 80s, right? Before all these cons and all this stuff was going on. And so he did. I, and I picked out a copy of John Sable Freelance Number 1 uh, instead of Green Arrow because I went back to the thing that inspired me. Right. And five days later or so, I get this package in the mail, and, and there it was. Wow, yeah. a treasure. Yeah, I got to when I met Mike uh, in person at Dragon Con in Atlanta back in 2011. I had two copies of that flyer with me, and I took both. I got him to sign one, and then I gave him one and oh. told him that story. So that was the first time I met him was 20-some-odd years after I almost met him. Right. <laughs> uh, that's such a fabulous story. I'm glad you shared it. We love it. And you actually got to chauffeur Mike around last December at Cherokee and tell him a little bit about that discovery and where you used yeah. to buy comics too, right? We did. Uh, you know, he, uh, he had to leave the Cherokee Comic Con a day early. And uh, because I had met him, I, I helped get him to Asheville for the Asheville Comic Expo. I was part of the reason that they invited him to come because I had made that connection with him. And, you know, o over the couple of years, he and I had corresponded via email and, and I'd gone to see him at a couple of other shows. And, you know, starting a friendly relationship, you know, it was one of those sort of things where you always have to be careful about your heroes and, and becoming friends with them. But he asked me to come and help him at Cherokee because the person who would normally come with him could not come to right. run his table. And I was close by, living close by, and he just emailed me and said, hey, would you like to come and help me run the table? And I'll do, you know, I'll barter for artwork. And he did a really great yes, Green Arrow did. and Black Canary artwork piece for me. We saw it, and it's gorgeous. It, it's, it's hanging on the wall. It's pretty stunning. Uh, but he had to leave early because of an emergency, and so he, he got a flight out of Asheville, and he said, can you take me to the airport in Asheville? I'm like, oh, that's great. And on the way, we drove past the little corner store near where I grew up as a kid where my grandfather had bought that comic book. Wonderful story. And uh, I got to point it out to him. I'm like, there it is. That's the store. Yeah. Who knew that would ever be in your future? It was, a spe it was a special moment. And hanging out with you guys. I mean, that whole Cherokee experience was not a bu busy, crowded kind of con, but it was a lot of fun because we got to hang out and got to do a lot of getting to know one another. And, yeah. And, and hanging with Mike and, and Mark Texiera and Steve Scott, who were there. It was just a really convivial time. I it guess. really was. Yeah, we were very much spoiled by that convention. Yeah. That's what Ruth and I always say. They should all be like that, personal. It's <laughs> just a convention just for us. for us. <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing based on several things you've said that 
John Sable might be your favorite Mike Grell character. Would that be the case? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's also my all-time favorite comic book series, closely followed by the Legion of Superheroes, just because of that nostalgia. And both of them are connected to, to Mike, obviously. Right, yeah. right. What character would you like to see Mike Grell work on in the future? What would I like to see Mike do? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I look through all the stuff that he's done over the years. I know he personally would like to do Captain America. I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes, and I've seen one piece of artwork that he did as a commission years ago up on maybe the Catskills website. I don't know. I'm trying to think of where I've seen it. But there, he did a Sherlock Holmes, and I wrote a Sherlock Holmes play yeah. a number of years ago. And I gave him a copy, and I'm like, you know, you, you should do Sherlock Holmes as a comic book character. That's one that you haven't tackled. I think that would be the one that I would like to see him do. Maybe he should adapt your play as a graphic novel. I, I was trying to drop that hint to him, but I, I don't know that he understood <laughs> really that. that quickly. <laughs> you're right on it. I, I don't know that he got that that was what I was uh, implying when I gave him the script. I would love to read that. The next time I see him, I might carry along your script <laughs> because you gave us a copy of it and say, you know, yeah. Mike, you should do this. Well, now, he has a copy of it, too. He, has, he doesn't have any excuses. <laughs> so you do a lot of conventions sort of like us, and we're at yeah. Heroes Con this weekend. Tell us what you like in particular about Heroes Con and what other cons you recommend. Heroes Con is just, uh, to me, it's one of the most amazing conventions out there. I was lucky enough as a kid when I was a teenager to come to the maybe sixth or seventh Heroes Con. You know, early on, I was here for Heroes Con 10, which was a Wolverine Weapon X, you know, X Roman numeral 10. That was, right. the, that was the year that that was. And it was a tiny little ballroom where they had a dozen guests and maybe 15 or, or so vendors. And it was very intimate and, you know, got to hang out and meet, you know, George Perez and Adam Hughes and Dave Norman. And, and you know, those folks were kind of working this the circuit back in the late 80s. And it was always so intimate. It was always so nice uh, to come and hang out. And it was not very crowded, but right. it was reasonable. And I have to say that I came back to it almost 20 years after the last time I had gone to a Heroes Con. I came back and brought my son, and I was blown away by how much bigger it was. But I love the fact that Shelton Drum and the people who put it on, it's only comics. It, it sticks to comics. They haven't crossed into the pop culture. They have maintained their commitment. And to me, this is just proof of you know the geeks inheriting the earth, as it were, where it's grown because of the demand that's out there. And it's turned into one of the, the finest, most fun conventions that you could possibly go to. It really is my favorite. I went and saw Mike at Fanboy Expo in Knoxville, Tennessee a couple of years ago. That's a decent little con as well. It, it has the you know, the actors and some of the celebs who were there crossed over with comic book artists. Uh, that's a lot of fun. I, the first time I met Mike was at Dragon Con, though, and I don't know that I've, I've recovered yet, and that was five years ago. <laughs> it's, it's pretty overwhelming, the Dragon Con scene, but it, you got to do it at least once. I think. Uh, I agree. That's a good point. So, Jeff, tell us what made you decide to go into podcasting and what you like most about it. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I got into uh, radio around the time I was going to go into podcasting. Uh, it was kind of one of those weird twists of fate where I was committed to the idea of podcasting. I, I do a lot of theater work and a lot of playwriting, so I wanted to get into voice work. And I had written some scripts, obviously, Sherlock Holmes. I also had adapted Robin Hood with a, a writing partner of mine. And initially, he and I had talked about it, 
from the standpoint of let's do a Robin Hood podcast because there isn't one that exists and we can use our universe as a jumping off point, promote what we're doing, maybe do radio drama adaptations of it, plus do like historical perspectives and do kind of a, a biographical look at the period and the characters and all of that. So we had talked about that for the better part of a year. And I said, I'm going to get the equipment for Christmas this year. You know, I'm going to do that. It's going to be great. And, and I did. I got the podcast equipment and all of the software and the editing material. And three weeks later, I was approached to take over a radio hosting position for uh, someone who was leaving that recommended me for it. And another couple of weeks later, I was on the air with a, a full radio studio. And so the podcasting equipment sat in a box for two years and never, never even got open because wow. I was like, wow, now I have all this the, the, the bright, shiny toys to play with. And so I, I kind of got into it in a reverse order where I did the radio show for the better part of a year. And with one of my producers, we started doing a music podcast series. And then uh, in December of 2014, we started the Geek Brain because I wanted to expand what I was doing on radio. Uh, you know, radio is, is kind of an, an evolving art form. More people are consuming audio, but a lot of people are going to podcasting instead of the radio dial. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sort of build a bridge between my radio show and the world of podcasting so that, you know, the listeners could kind of evolve in that direction. And I was given a fairly wide, you know, berth as far as being able to produce it, not really having to ask permission or go through a lot of red tape. I just did what I wanted to do. And, and I said, oh, we're going to do a geek thing now. And, and we started. And, you know, 102 episodes later, we're still nobody's asked us to stop. So we're still doing it. That's a wonderful show, so I'm happy wow. it Thank continues you. to keep going on. <laughs> Appreciate that. We still don't know what we're doing. That's that's the ultimate thing. We keep changing it because we have to fit it in around the regular radio show. My producer and I don't often have the same schedules, and, and so we, we sort of fit it in when we can, and therefore I play with the format a lot. So before we go, please tell everyone how they can follow you and where they can find that podcast. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, the Geek Brain Popcast, which uh, may be the best worst title I could have come up with because the people go, pod, what, what, pop, pop, what? Yeah, uh, it is the Geek Brain Popcast because it's pop culture, geek crossover. There's a page on Facebook. You can follow us on Facebook. That's a good jumping off point. Uh, iTunes, it's right there. You can subscribe to it on iTunes or it now has a home on my radio station page, which is 880therevolution.com, part of the iHeartMedia radio network. And it's uh, 880, it's those numbers, therevolution.com. And it has the little link there for podcast. Geek Brain is in there, plus my regular radio show, some political rants that I do, and then the music series podcast as well with a lot of local musicians, but also a lot of national and international artists have been guests on my Revolutions Per Minute uh, music series. So, And we highly recommend them, so everybody should check them out <laughs> because we love listening to your show every week. Oh, thank you guys so much. And I, and I tell you what, I enjoy listening to what you guys do too. I, I felt jealous for a moment, I have to say, when you started the Warlord Worlds podcast because I'm... I, I, put myself into this grand arena where I'm covering all the breadth of geekdom. Uh, and I'm like, ah, you know, I, I wish I could focus in more narrowly and, and do what you guys do. But what you do is fantastic. I, I don't think I could do it quite the same way. Uh, and you guys just do such a great job going through the story arcs and through the books. And it really makes me go back and, and reread them and want to pick them up and see them again. So uh, I, I appreciate what you guys do. I'm so glad that we've connected and hooked up. I'm too. It's been really great for us to get to meet you and get to know you over these last uh, last year, I guess, but certainly yeah. the last six or eight months in particular. For sure, yeah. It's amazing. The, the world of geeks coming together. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. I'm glad we could meet up today. Oh, Me too. Thank you, guys. 
Hey folks, and welcome to the Geek Brain Popcast. I am Jeff Messer. I am your host for all things geek each and every week. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out on our main website, 880therevolution.com. That's where I work as a radio host five days a week. But I can't wait to get my geek on each and every week as we share stories from the world of geek. Movies, TV, comic books. Hey, you know comic books. The source material. We have great discussions plus interviews. And I'm not ashamed to let people know that my geek flag is flying high. I'm very proud to be a geek. I am a lifelong fan of comics, of science fiction. I'm a Star Wars kid. I'm a big, big fan of DC, Marvel, you name it. We cover everything you can think of and a little bit more. From The Walking Dead to Star Wars to Star Trek, Doctor Who, comic books, DC, Marvel, Batman, Superman, Iron Man, you name it, we cover it. And if you have any suggestions, please send them our way. Check us out on Facebook, the Geek Brain Popcast. You can comment there and follow our antics. Plus, tune in each and every week as we go deep into the geek right here at the Geek Brain Popcast, where geeks have finally inherited the earth. We have a very special guest joining us today. He is the man responsible for everything we talk about on Warlord Worlds. So it is with great pleasure that we welcome Mr. Mike Grell. Thank you for joining us. Hey guys, glad to be here. Then again, at my age, I'm glad to be anywhere. <laughs> for listeners who haven't had the opportunity to see you at a convention before, please tell the story about how you first got into the comics industry. Well, I actually started out, I wanted to be either Tarzan or Zorro, but both those jobs were taken. So then I decided that the next best thing would be to be a lumberjack, just like my old man. As luck would have it, when I was 16, he got me a job working in the woods. And as soon as I found out how hard that old boy had been working all his life, I figured there's got to be an easier way to make a living. So then I decided being a, an architect would be just the thing, except you have to do math. And arithmetic was never a good subject for me in school, so... Then I decided on commercial art because it has the word commercial in it, which means you get paid while you're still alive and you don't have to wait until you're dead for 100 years to collect your cash. And it has the word art, which means that you're not really working for a living because, hey, you're an artist, right? So uh, I was going to uh, school and had figured that I would switch to a private art school where I could actually learn something. And before I could do that, I got caught up in the draft, and I picked the four-year stint in the Air Force, where I became an illustrator and did a lot of different kinds of interesting graphic arts projects while I was in the Air Force, including drawing maps for the B-52 bombers who were supposed to be able to find their way over to Russia and bomb places like Moscow and stuff like that. Needless to say, all of that's gone by the wayside, thank God. While I was in basic training, I met a guy by the name of Bailey Phelps who told me in no uncertain terms that I should forget about this commercial art stuff and be a cartoonist instead. I said, why? And he said, well, cartoonists only work two or three days a week and they make a million dollars a year. So here I am after 43 years. Somebody owes me $42.5 million and a hell of a lot of vacation time. <laughs> it's, as far as getting into comics goes... That was a stroke of luck all the way around. 
I was in New York for the 1973 Comic Con, and I was trying to sell a comic strip called Savage Empire. And nobody was buying action-adventure scripts at all. Couldn't even get an appointment to talk to any of the editors. So I did show my portfolio to a couple of guys from DC Comics. Turned out to be Irv Novick and Alan Ashman. Uh, Irv was doing the Batman comic at the time, and Alan was uh, Joe Kubert's assistant. And they both encouraged me. Irv told me in no uncertain terms to get my carcass up to Julie Schwartz's office and show him my portfolio, which I did. And Julie called Joe Orlando in, and I made my pitch, and Joe and Julie looked over the portfolio, and I walked out a half an hour later with my first script. And that's how you get to be a cartoonist. And that was an Aquaman script, was that right? It was, uh, As the Undersea City Sleeps which was written by Steve Skates, who was heavily into alliteration and the letter S. <laughs> uh, that's a fantastic story. Now, from there, the Savage Empire that you were just talking about led to the Warlord. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, while I was at the Comic-Con in New York, Saul Harrison was there reviewing portfolios for DC Comics. And I had nothing better to do with my portfolio than... <laughs> Then to leave it with him, I left him, I left him a copy of Savage Empire, which contained half a dozen Sunday strips, a couple of weeks' worth of dailies, and a synopsis of the entire storyline. And then I went away and pretty much forgot about that altogether until, this was a couple of years later, the uh, word came down by the grapevine in the Jungle Drums that Atlas Comics was firing up, and they were going to be offering $100 a page, which was way more than DC was paying at the time, plus creator ownership of the properties. And that really rang my chimes. So took the portfolio over to Atlas and talked to Jeff Roven, who was the editor at the time. And he looked it over, liked it, and said, this is great, we want to do it. And... I, uh, I said, fine, but I've got commitments at D.C. I need for you to hold off on announcing until I get two issues finished. I want uh, two issues completed in the can before you announce to anybody. And he said, oh, sure, no problem at all. Well, I walked 20 minutes across town to D.C.'s office, and Carmine Infantino was waiting for me in the lobby. Yeah, Jeff Rovin had picked up the phone as soon as I walked out the door to brag to Carmine that he had me sewed up. And Carmine, who was a little irritated, so Carmine said, uh, why, don't you, why didn't you bring it to us? And I said, well, you guys haven't had a real good track record with sword and sorcery. And besides, you know, here's Atlas, and they're offering creator ownership, 100 bucks a page, and... Carmen said, well, I, I couldn't give you creator ownership, but I could give you top rate, which was, I think, $67.50 a page, and guarantee of a one-year run. Well, that was actually pretty good. I mean, I thought about the, the general situation, and Atlas was very much a crapshoot, and as luck would have it, they, they reneged on every one of their promises, 
the, the first guys who did the who did the the first books, yes, they did get a hundred dollars a page, but three months or so into the run, they were all fired and replaced by guys who would work with thirty or forty dollars a page, and none of those creators wound up owning their own material. Atlas wound up holding the copyright on every single one of the properties. So at any rate, I walked into Carmine's office, followed him in, and his phone was ringing. And at that moment, my brain just kicked in and said, you know, if he buys this thing, you're going to lose it. So while he was talking on the phone for about two or three minutes, I basically jettisoned the concept of Savage Empire, which was a, an archaeologist who gets transported back through time to Atlantis and replaced it with a story of an SR-71 spy pilot whose uh, plane is damaged while on a mission over Russia. And as he's trying to make his way home over the North Pole, the plane falls into the opening at the top of the world, winds up at the land at the center of the Earth. And I, I, I pulled the name of the world from a story by Jules Verne, The Journey to the Center of the Earth, which was one of my favorite books as a kid. I had read it probably eight times in school, saw the movie maybe 15 or so times. So uh, it, was, it was a subject that I really loved. And I also I had just finished reading a book called The Hollow Earth. And it talked about all the various theories about hollow earth and how far back in history it had gone. So I was I was pulling things from everywhere and I threw in a little of this, a little of that. He asked, what, what's the name of the world? I said, Skartaris, which was the name of the mountain peak from journey to the center of the earth that points the way down into the volcano, the special passage that leads them to the correct channel to the center of the earth. And the other one was uh, the, the capital city. It's called Shambhala, which I took from Three Dog Night. <laughs> which, but, but that also has the same relationship to the Hollow Earth because Shambhala is the Tibetan city of gold, which is supposed to be buried in the mountains somewhere in Tibet. So with, with all of that, I, I managed to speak with enough authority that Carmine said, pitch Joe Orlando, and if he likes it, I'll buy it and we'll give you a year guarantee. The only thing that Joe asked that I couldn't answer off the top of my head because I was making this stuff up as I went along. He said, so what's this guy's name? <laughs> I went, um, Morgan, yeah. And he goes, Morgan what? He said, Morgan the Raider. You don't like Henry Morgan the Pirate. And he goes, uh, so what's his first name? I went, hmm, Henry, just like the Pirate. And Joe said, nah, I can't do that. Well, I was a little upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't I? And he said, well, two actors using that name right now, uh, Henry Morgan and Harry Morgan. So I reached back into my hat or wherever I was pulling stuff out of at the moment. And my brother had just had a baby boy that he named Travis. And so I told him it's going to be Travis Morgan. And Joe said, Travis I went, yeah, you know, like at the Alamo? I went, oh, oh, yeah, that could work. Good heroic name, right? What did I know? What did he know? So the upshot of the deal was that Joe went for the deal, Crime Line approved it, and I was given a, 
a guarantee of a one-year run, which lasted right up until the third issue came out. It premiered in first issue special number eight, and then went into its own series. But when issue number three came out, I was looking at the lettered pages, just doing a proofread to make sure everything was correct. And at the end of the story, I turned the page and it says, The End. I said, Joe, this isn't, this isn't right. It's supposed to say next issue and then have the title of the next issue. And Joe said, i got to tell you, Carmine canceled the book. <laughs> I went, he can't do that. He, he, he promised me a year run. And Joe said, well, he lied. He does that. And so there I was with a canceled title. But fortunately, about three weeks later, Jeanette Kahn walked through the door and canceled Carmine Infantino. And she was a very astute cookie. She studied the whole lineup of DC Comics, read every comic that came out for at least six months before she took over the company. And first thing she did was check the publishing schedule and looked it over and said, where's the world? And turns out it had been her favorite title. So uh, they told her Carmine canceled it. And she said, Carmine's not here anymore. Put it back. So that's how it wound up back on the publishing schedule at DC. Amazing. You grew up as a fan of some classic adventure heroes like Robin Hood and Zorro, which are favorites of mine. How did those stories influence the type of stories and characters that you developed for your comics? Oh, boy. I I think almost everything that I've written has been formed by something that I experienced either in my life or my youth. I love the Tarzan books, the Zorro books. The, the TV series, Robin Hood. I shot bows and arrows from the time I was a little kid, and we used to make our own bows and, uh, out of any stick that we could find that would bend in any piece of string. And I would run around with a batch of arrows stuck down the back of my shirt and shoot at cardboard boxes and everything else. I even stood up against the wall of the old barn and let my brother shoot arrows around me. Oh, my gosh. I was about 17 years old before it dawned on me that they might not be missing on purpose. (laughs) So coming back to that that previous question, Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn movie, and the BBC series actually did influence, influence me quite a bit when it came time to do Green Arrow. I always saw that character as as a Robin Hood character and did everything that I could to to make them similar in so many ways and it was a it was a chance to do my I guess my own version of Robin Hood uh, with with Green Arrow so one of the things that I, I really liked about the character was that Green Arrow represented the spirit of justice rather than the letter of the law which is what Robin Hood was you know you know, the law is the law is the law, yes, but justice is more important, which is what the, the difference was between Green Lantern and Green Arrow, because Green Lantern, of course, is he's the sheriff. He's, he's the guy uh, out there to strictly uphold the letter of the law. And speaking about Green Arrow, you basically reinvented Green Arrow with the Longbow Hunters. It really completely changed the character in so many ways that have influenced the character even up until today with the Arrow TV series. What does it feel like to be 
so influential on a character like that that's been around for 75 years? It's really quite a kick. Uh, I, I didn't realize that it was going to have as much impact, long-lasting impact on the character as, as it has had, but uh, it's certainly been uh, rewarding to me. I, I made the changes that I made for rather specific reasons. The chief difference was that I moved him away from mythical star city and into the real world of Seattle. Uh, chose the city because I, uh, I'm a small town boy from northern Wisconsin. And if you're going to write anything about a, an urban environment, you'd better know the city you're talking about. And so I, I had lived in only three cities in my life, Chicago, New York, and Seattle, where I was living at the time. And I had already done New York with John Sable. Didn't find Chicago that interesting or compelling a city for the setting for a character like Green Arrow because I still wanted that aspect of Sherwood Forest. There aren't any forests around Chicago. So Seattle had everything plus the constant rain, well, it seemed like it at the time. So that was what brought about the, the change in the costume with the addition of the hood, the long sleeves on the, on the shirt and trousers instead of leotards. So you've had the opportunity to revisit some of your characters like the Warlord and John Sable in recent years. And I'm wondering if you have plans for any further stories with those characters or any of your other creations that you're thinking of bringing back. Well, I killed the warlord at the end of the last series. Yes, yes. And, and I know it's, it's comic books, and it's hard to keep a good man dead. But so far, we're, we're managing to uh, hold off. He's, he's, he's still dead, folks. I burned the body. doesn't mean that I don't have something in the back of my mind for the 50th anniversary if I'm still around at that point, at which point... I think I will actually reveal whether Shakira is a girl who turns into a cat or a cat who turns into a girl, <laughs> but not before then. I've, I've got a Sable graphic novel that I've been working on off and on for uh, quite a while. It's in the finished plot stage. It's called Rules of the Hunt. That will be the title of the next graphic novel. I also have another prose novel about halfway finished called Freelance, which introduces another character of Sable Mythos, iconography, I guess, lexicon. That's lexicon. the word I'm looking for. The Sable lexicon into the more contemporary stories. And that's Sparrow. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And I've got a a deep dark secret about Sparrow that you'll have to read the novel in order to find out what it is. Beyond that, I've also written a screenplay for Sable and Maggie the Cat and Shaman's Tears and uh, another original one called Earthbound that isn't based on any comic material at all. And the Sable and Maggie the Cat are starting to get some serious play in Hollywood. So, as my grandmother said, spit in one hand, wish in the other. See which one fills up the fastest. But of course, she cleaned it up for us kids. And it, it, it's every bit of a, a giant crapshoot, but I think we're in an atmosphere today where we have strong possibility of actually getting a feature film done. 
That's fantastic news, and I'm sure excites everybody with the possibilities. Just thinking, we're here at a convention, and you've been doing a lot of conventions in recent years. What do you like most about coming to comic conventions? I love the energy of the crowd and the people getting together with my friends from, well, so many years ago and some new friends that I'm making on the convention circuit these days. The, the new generation of artists are pretty incredible, and I find myself inspired and really jacked up after I uh, come back from the show. Exhausting, yes, but I, I don't think I've ever gone to a show where I've had a chance to sit with other artists that I didn't come back inspired in some way to do better at what I do. A few years back, I uh, sat and talked to Billy Tucci when he was doing the Sergeant Rock book, and his art was so great. Uh, it was reproduced from the pencils, and I came back to the studio, and every time I would start to do a drawing and get to that point where it's becoming tiresome, you start looking for shortcuts, find my brain going yeah but Billy wouldn't take a shortcut would he so here, here I am after all these years learning from a kid half my age here's a fun question before we wrap up like us you're fans of the James Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service what are some of the things you like most about that movie oh my god just about everything I think that if they had cast Sean Connery in that movie it would be regarded today as the ultimate James Bond. The action, John Glenn, I think, directed it. He had been the action director That's right. leading up to that, and that was his, his shot to actually direct the entire thing. And it had all the elements, plus Diana Rigg, who was, of course, Emma Peel from the Avengers, and every young guy who laid eyes on her, I'm sure, had the same reaction that I did. Plus, she's a, a really terrific actress. The the romance with James Bond, the way they, they set it up, it was very faithful to the book, where she's the first woman who makes him think about giving up the life. Right. And then, of course, it all ends tragically. But if uh, Sean Connery had been in that role, it, it would be regarded today as the very best. And it's not to say that George Lazenby did a bad job, I think he did a terrific job of filling some really sizable shoes. But for my money, it has all the elements of the, the classic James Bond stories, plus the romance. Bond was all about sex, but the romance was missing. And once he got the romance in there, everything just clicked together. Plus Louis Armstrong. That's right. Yes, with the thing. We have all... The time in the world just for love. <laughs> oh, fabulous. <laughs> so in closing, we want to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your very busy weekend to meet with us. Is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners before you go? Yeah. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for an upcoming reprint of Star Slayer coming out from Dark Horse Comics. should be out in the fall. And sometime... This summer, to coincide with the release of the new Tarzan movie, they're going to be reprinting my Tarzan comic strip from the Sunday pages. That's great news. Well, just want to thank you again for taking time to talk with us today. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. In closing, we want to sincerely thank everyone who took time out of their busy schedules to talk to us, including Professor Allen, Mike Lane, Ed and Terry Moore, and Jeff Messer. 
And we want to especially thank Mike Grell, who not only took time during his busy weekend to give us an interview, but he also invited us to dinner one evening with him and Mary and Alberto, who works with him at these events, along with Alberto's lovely Aunt Kathy and Chris and Helen, who are volunteers for the Hero Initiative, which is a wonderful organization that we think all comic fans should support. Everyone really made this the best Heroes Con ever. Thank you. We would love for those of you listening to write in and share your Mike Grell origin stories. So before we go, we'll provide our contact information. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr under the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's a good way to help the show be noticed and perhaps attract more listeners. You may also enjoy our other podcasts. Trekker Talk about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. All three are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. As we planned, we picked up a few extra items signed by Mike Grell while we were at Heroes Con, and we're going to have some drawings next time to give those items away. All you have to do to be entered in the drawing is submit an iTunes review for any of our podcasts. For each podcast you review, your name goes into the drawing. So, if you review all three shows, your name goes into the drawing three times. And in case you're wondering, if you've previously submitted reviews for our shows, then those reviews count as well. We're including those names in the drawing. And if you are outside the U.S., please email us to let us know you've submitted a review. Since we are in the U.S., iTunes only shows us reviews from listeners in the U.S. That means we have to take a few extra steps to locate the reviews if they are from a different country. And we need to know the country name to locate it. Good luck to everyone. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next month for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network at comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Music